All right, Luke Acts for beginners. This is lesson number 26, last lesson in this, uh, in this series. Paul's journey to Rome and uh, Lord willing we'll cover uh, Acts 27.1 to the very end of the book, Acts 28.31. So uh, in our last uh, scene uh, we've seen that Paul has been uh, languishing under house arrest in Herod's palace at Caesarea by the sea. Uh, He's not been charged with any crime. Uh, He has appeared before three different Roman governors during that time, Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. But none of them have been able to determine any Roman law that he has broken, aside from the many uh, unsubstantiated accusations hurled at him by the Jews. This has caused a, a kind of a stalemate in the proceedings causing Paul to, um, or rather causing Paul's continued confinement because the Roman officials fear that the Jewish leaders will create trouble if he's released. So no no one's doing anything and Paul is just stewing there in jail. So Paul then uh, breaks this logjam by demanding as a Roman citizen his right to appeal his case to Caesar's court in Rome. This frees him from an undetermined amount of time spent in confinement at Caesarea and a resolution for his case as well as distancing himself from the murderous Jews in Jerusalem who want to kill him. He may be safe in prison there in Caesarea, but eventually the Jews will find a way to get him out of that jail and and kill him. So he he appeals, to, um, he appeals to the king to go to the imperial court in Rome and be tried there, which is his right as a Roman citizen. And you see here in our outline, the fi- we're at the final section, Paul's journey uh, to Rome. So let's uh, begin reading, shall we, in Acts chapter 27, beginning verse 1. It says, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in an uh, Adramitian ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. From there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. When we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived off uh, Snidus, since the wind did not permit us to go further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone, and with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. So once again we see Luke's attention to social and historical detail as he chronicles Paul's voyage to Rome. He names the centurion, Julius, and the Augustan cohort. These were soldiers who acted much like deputy marshals, if you wish, or sheriff's department. They worked across various lines of law enforcement. They were responsible for communications between Rome and its armies in foreign lands, as well as the transfer of prisoners, as was the case here. 
Like travel today where you can't get a direct flight to your destination but you have to have like a connecting flight like if we want to go to uh, like we want to go to Montreal for example we have to fly first to Dallas and then get a plane you know or go first to Chicago whatever it is. Well it was much the same way. During that time you could not sail directly to Italy from a port in Judea or in Syria. So the centurion, the soldiers, Paul and other prisoners uh, and the other prisoners are probably being sent to Rome for execution as well as Luke because he says we. All right. He says we in verse two meaning he's he's along for this trip. And another brother Aristarchus from the church at Thessalonica. All of these people set sail on a ship that normally berthed at Mysia uh, which was a Roman province in Asia Minor known as Turkey today. So the first step on the journey was Sidon, where Paul was allowed to go ashore to visit with friends. A gracious act here on the part of the centurion. Hugging the coast and using Cyprus as a cover from powerful winds, they made their way to Myra, which was a port in the province of Lycia. And it was a very slow journey of about 15 days in those days. Here they found a larger ship able to transport them all the way to Italy. This ship also made slow progress avoiding the shorter and more direct route on the northern side of the island of Crete and sailing instead on the southern side of the island where there was less wind and there were better harbors for large commercial vessels like the one they were traveling on. They eventually arrived at Lycia, a port city in southern Crete. So we pick up the story again in verse 9. It says, When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of our cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship by than what was being said by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached the decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. So Luke mentions the fast. They said the fast was over. This helps us to determine the time of year that this voyage was uh, was being taken. The fast referred to the fasting done by the Jews on the Day of Atonement, a time where Jews would fast and pray as the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies in the temple at Jerusalem in order to offer sacrifice first for himself and then for the people for their sins. This feast also helps fix the time of year because it only happened once per year. Since these events are taking place somewhere in the years of 59 to 60 A.D., we know that the Day of Atonement for those years would be in early October on the Jewish liturgical calendar. Now, maritime historians tell us that sea voyages in that region were considered dangerous if undertaken between mid-September and early November and not possible after November 10th when all sea traffic was suspended until March. So Paul warns the danger in continuing the journey. We have to be careful. This is not a prophecy. This was not a prophecy, but an opinion based on Paul's experience traveling by sea. 
After all, he claims that he had been shipwrecked and left adrift three times in his life. We read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11.25. So there's no suggestion of divine or angelic help here. The manner in which Luke describes the scene suggests that the sailors, the captain, as well as Paul were experienced and well aware of the risks in sailing at that time of year. And Paul gives his opinion on the matter. And so uh, Luke describes in part the winning argument of the captain that the, the present location wasn't suitable for wintering the ship. And based on this, they set sail for a better harbor located further up the coast of Crete at Phoenix. And so now we continue reading about this journey in verse 13. When a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete close inshore. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called a Uroquillo. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along, running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda. We were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship. And fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Syrtis, they let down the sea anchor and in this way let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. So all goes well as they have a good wind to sail by and they cautiously hug the coastline, making their way some 40 miles to Phoenix, uh, that port. But soon after their departure, they're hit with what Paul calls a typhoon or what we call a hurricane. The term Uroquillo or Nor'easter is the nickname given to this type of storm that the sailors were familiar with at that time. So the wind, is, the wind now drove the ship and the sailors were in emergency mode trying to avoid it capsizing. Now one of the problems was that their lifeboat was normally tied to the ship and it was pulled along behind. But now that, uh, you know, that boat was full of water and it was jeopardizing the main vessel because of its weight and drag and lack of control. They didn't want to cut it off because it would be the only means of escape should the ship sink. So they managed to hoist it up and secure it you know, within the main vessel. Another problem they encountered was the separation of the wooden planks of which the ship was built. Uh, gale force winds, crashing waves and the stress of the pole that held the mainsail would cause the uh, planks, especially those of the hull at the front of the ship, to, uh, to, se- to separate and cause the ship to take on water and then sink. So Luke describes how the sailors used cables to hold the ship together and avoid the planks of the hull coming apart. The next danger that they faced that he describes was that they needed to make a course correction because the wind was driving the ship towards the notorious sandbanks located between Carthage and Cyrene known as Syrtis. Now in order to do this they had to um, lighten the ship and so they allowed the ship's anchor to drag along in the sea in an effort to slow the ship down um, and um, 
and then uh, you know, they unleashed their, their cargo and heavy equipment overboard. Now, of course, uh, from hindsight, because we're reading the story now, um, we know that their strategy worked and the ship, of course, was changed enough despite the storm that they avoided Syrtis and the sandbars there and they sailed 13 more days, 480 miles, landing off the shore of the island of Malta. At this point, however, they had done all they could humanly do, and for the moment they were stranded at sea in the middle of a terrible storm, not able to navigate or know where they were, regardless of the time of day or night. And so Luke describes the consensus of the sailors, the soldiers, and the prisoners who have accepted their fate And they are now resigned to the fact that they will probably die in this storm. And so we move on to Paul's uh, exhortation in verse 21. He says, when they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, men, you ought to have followed my advice. Notice here he didn't say you ought to have uh, followed my prophecy. It was advice that he was giving at the beginning. You ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must first run aground on a certain island. And so in Paul's speech, we see the difference between his earlier caution about the risk they were taking and the possible loss in sailing at that time of the year. This based on his experience. Note that in verse 21, he actually says that what he had previously said was advice, not prophecy. He had been proven correct, but he reminds them that his warning had been advice. By reminding them of this, he is not having a, an I told you so moment. You know, it's not a yeah, 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 I told you we were going to die. You know, he's not having one of those moments, but rather he's setting up the basis for what he's going to tell them now which will be miraculous and prophetic in nature. He then assures them that their lives will be saved and he describes the vision he has had of an angel from God and the message that the angel brought him. First of all, that he, Paul, will indeed stand before Caesar, would be Nero at that time, uh, that he would stand before Caesar himself and plead his case. And then secondly, everyone with him, not only the Christians, but everyone on the ship will be saved. The way this promise is worded can lead to several conclusions. Paul had already been praying for everyone to be saved, not just the Christians. And God was telling him that his prayer on their behalf was now being answered. Also that these men now owed their lives to him. Paul was using this entire episode as a way of witnessing to these pagan men about the true God in heaven. Paul's always got the, you know, he's always got his eye on the ball. Always his eyes on the ball. He's, he's, he's been chosen to proclaim the gospel. So whether he's in a synagogue or he's in a pagan city, whether he's on a ship that's about to sink, he's always got his eye on the ball. How can I proclaim Christ? And you see him doing this right in this uh, terrible situation. 
Uh, note that Paul's encouragement is not a general banal kind of platitude, you know, like, oh, don't worry, everything will be all right. I, I see that in movies sometimes. You know, some, some terrible thing is about to happen and somebody will come up and say, don't worry, everything will be all right. I promise it. And I'm talking back to the TV when I hear that. You know, I'm saying, how can you promise it? You don't know. So Paul is not some kind of you know, throwaway compliment here. This is the subject of prophecy. His encouragement is specific. They will all be saved. No loss of life. The ship, however, will be lost and they will run aground near an island. That's pretty specific. Now, specificity about future events is what makes this a prophecy. Paul's witness about everything else will be worthless if any of the details of this prophecy are wrong or different in the end. So in Acts 27, uh, you know, a long passage, I'm not going to read here, we read about the rescue. Luke describes in detail the 14 days that the ship was driven about by the wind, eventually approaching land. At this point, the sailors attempt to take the lifeboat and abandon the ship. But Paul warns the centurion that if the sailors escape, everyone would be lost. And thankfully, this time, the soldier listened to Paul and thwarted the escape by cutting the empty lifeboat adrift. At the dawn of the 15th day that they are there, uh, Paul encouraged them to eat some food and he reminded them of God's promise, after which he held a prayer in the presence of everyone. Luke notes that there were 276 people in all. Imagine the historical accuracy. He counted the people on the ship. He just didn't say, oh, there were a lot of people on the ship. No, very specific how they will be saved. The ship will be lost. They'll be near an island uh, and 276 souls uh, aboard, the, uh, aboard the ship. Um, sensing that uh, they were nearing the land, they lightened the ship some more in order to help them steer it clear to the shore. And it's at this point that one of Paul's prophecies about the ship comes true. So let's read that. It says, when day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach and they resolved to drive the ship onto it um, if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they all were brought safely to land. So upon seeing the beach, the sailors make a dash trying to steer the ship onto the bay in an effort to save the vessel. But they run it aground, stuck on the shallow sandbar. So they're stuck in the front like this. And the waves are coming in the back of the ship, just pounding it and breaking it apart. And so the, the nose of the bow of the ship caught in a reef. The violent wind and the waves are battering it from the rear, effectively tearing it apart. So the soldiers, you know, knowing that they would be held responsible if any of the, if any of the prisoners escape, it's on them. It's on them. That's the uh, Roman army was pretty tough about that. 
So instead of jeopardizing themselves, they prepare to kill all of the all of the prisoners, including Paul. But they're stopped by the centurion who wants to save Paul, who has no charges against him. And so the centurion orders everyone to abandon ship. And as Paul had said, all were saved. The ship was lost. It ran aground on a sandbar near the island where they would find safety. And that island is, uh, island is Malta. You know, interesting, uh, he said they would be saved. He didn't say it would be easy. You know? It's not like they found a bay and they casually you know, guided the ship to the bay, dropped anchor, you know, swam quarter mile to the shore on a, on a lovely sunny afternoon. No, the ship is falling apart. They're still in danger of drowning. Some are swimming in the storm. Others are hanging on to planks and boards and whatever they can get because they don't know how to swim. They're all safe, but boy, you know, they, they just make it. I see sometimes a parallel in our own lives. You know, God promises us He'll be with us and He'll strengthen us and He'll do this and that. You know, and yet the ride is pretty rough sometimes. The ride is pretty rough sometimes. All right, so they, uh, they end up in Malta. Um, Paul's stay in Malta, Acts 28. Luke records that the ship's passengers spent three months on this island. And while there, Paul's normal pattern of ministry was established for a brief time. The uh, pattern was the performance of miracles and healings followed by teaching. So Luke describes one such event. While building a fire on the beach, Paul is bitten by a poisonous snake but he suffers no effects. This amazes the locals who witness this and his reputation leads him to be asked to heal the father of a local leader, which he does. Later on, Luke writes that all the inhabitants came to Paul for healing and because of this, they were honored and treated well by the people of the island during their stay and they, prov- they were provided with supplies when they left. Now, Luke doesn't mention it specifically But it would be hard to imagine that Paul would be performing miraculous healings without preaching the gospel, which was the purpose for the healings to begin with. And so we arrive at the very last section. Paul is in Rome, chapter 28. Let's read a portion of that. It says, at the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. After we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there, we sailed around and arrived at Regium. And a day later, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Petoli. There we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. So Luke quickly um, summarizes, excuse me, the final leg of the journey and Paul's uh, meeting with brethren who lived in that particular region. Now, the fact that he stayed with them for a week without his Roman guard showed the trust that he had built up between himself and Julius, the centurion assigned to guard and to transport him to Rome. 
Eventually Julius handed Paul over to the imperial officer along with Festus's letter containing the particulars of the case along with his own report. Festus's letter contained no criminal charges and Julius's report surely described Paul in a positive light so that he was not confined to the barracks or with other prisoners but he was allowed to live in a private quarter probably with Luke and Aristarchus for two years when his case finally came before Caesar's. Justice was grinding very slowly. Two years. Imagine two years in jail in Caesarea, this long torturous trip, two more years, you know, house arrest in Rome before his case, a total of four plus years. If ever you're impatient for God to work in your life, you know, try, try four plus years to uh, uh, you know, as I said, I think last week or the week before, you know, Jesus promised Paul that he would preach to kings and governors. And at the beginning, that probably sounded pretty exciting. You know, I wouldn't mind having an opportunity to preach to the president or some the premier or somebody. That'd be great. You know, <laughs> he just didn't know the way that the, all of that was going to be arranged. And so certainly he had to have a measure, um, a measure of uh, of patience. Well, it doesn't, take a long, it doesn't take long for a familiar scene to take place as Paul begins his ministry while he's under house arrest in Rome. His first action, and we know this, on the third day after his arrival. I mean, I'd need a month to recover. You know, I'd have to have some quiet time, some me time after that. Third day after his arrival, he calls on the Jewish leaders to try and explain why he's been arrested. You know, before troublemakers from Jerusalem show up and begin continuing, you know, they continue their attacks against them because they've been following them from place to place. So there's nothing to say that they won't show up in Rome and, and poison the well again. Surprisingly, the, the people in Rome say that they are not aware of any trouble he's had with the leaders in Jerusalem, but they do know that he's joined the sect that he uh, used to persecute and they're curious about this. Now, at the time, many Jews considered Christianity merely an extension or a sect belonging to Judaism. This changed drastically after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, um, where Christianity after that was seen as a very separate religion from Judaism, not only from within Judaism, but from without Judaism. Even Roman officials and others began to see that these two were different things. And so the leaders return with the leaders, Jewish leaders who are in Rome. They return with many other Jews and Paul preaches the gospel to them with the same results that he had experienced when he preached in synagogues in Judea and Syria and other places throughout the Roman Empire. So let's read a little, uh, a little section of that. It says, when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. Um, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. 
for the heart of this people has become dull and with their ears they scarcely hear and they have closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also uh, listen. So aside from the gospel message, Paul tells his Jewish audience that he plans to preach the same gospel to the Gentiles because God meant it for them as well. And according to his experience, he is assured that they're going to believe it, even if the Jews don't. You know, he's saying, I've given it to you. And it doesn't matter if, if you reject it, I'm going to take it to the Gentiles because I know that they will receive it. That's been his experience, preaching the gospel to Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire. And so uh, Luke rather adds an epilogue here at the very end. He says, when he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So Luke finishes by reporting that the Jews left divided. Some believed, some did not. Over a two year period, Paul continued to preach to both Jews and Gentiles from his confined position in Roman detention. Now, it would be those Jewish and Gentile converts in Rome that the gospel would go forth from the capital city to the empire, to all corners of the empire. So the people he was teaching in Rome, both Jew and Gentile who were converted, they're the ones that carried the gospel throughout the empire. It would be from this a confined place that even Paul's elite, or Paul's elite praetorian guards would become Christians. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 13, Paul talks about the guards even being uh, uh, converted. Uh, and he even mentions some individuals in Caesar's household. That's pretty high up. Uh, the gospel reaches all the way to that place. And while under arrest in Rome, Paul wrote the letters to the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, and to Philemon. So he was busy there. Again, he's confined, he can't travel, but the message of the gospel is able to travel forth through letters and through individuals that he's converted. So in both Philippians chapter 1, verse 23 and Philemon 22, written near the end of his two-year imprisonment, Paul writes that he was confidently expecting to be freed. Now, uncontradicted tradition tells us that after his acquittal, he planned for a trip to Spain. We read about that in Romans 15, 24, and 28. And also, he revisited several of the congregations that he had previously established on his first and second missionary journeys. In 66 AD, he was arrested a second time as part of Nero's persecution of Christians uh, who were falsely accused of starting the fire that destroyed much of Rome in 64 AD. While he's in prison this second time, he wrote his final epistle, Second Timothy, and then was beheaded in Rome in 67 AD. And that was the end of his life and of course his, his ministry. Uh, a marvelous example of Christian development and Christian service that we have in Paul the Apostle. Um, you know, 
it's a long, uh, it's a long book and a lot of lessons. You know, we can draw a lot of lessons, but I, I'd like to just draw one lesson, one particular lesson for the whole uh, book, and it would be this one. God can use you. God can use you. There are so many characters, events, and details about church life, church work, and people in the book of Acts that, as I said, it's, it's hard to select one overarching lesson or theme. But one lesson that does come to mind is that no matter who or where you are, God can use you. For example, Peter, an uneducated fisherman living far away from the seat of Jewish religious and political power, is used by God to proclaim the most important message in history to his nation and its rulers. Paul, a Jewish religious fanatic, is used by God to teach and mature the believers of a religion he hated and tried to destroy. I mean, of all the unlikely people. Both men served from a position of weakness. One was a poor fisherman with no authority whatsoever. And the other a practitioner of a strange religion. And yet both are used by God to establish a faith and religious practice that covers the entire world. And so the lesson here, the lesson is that God can use you if you let him. The promise here, God can use you to do things you never could imagine. If you let him. Do you think by any stretch of the imagination that Peter had someone asked him before he met Jesus that if someone said to Peter, Peter one day you'll you'll be preaching a religious message that will cover the world. You know, he would he would have laughed at them. Completely ridiculous. He would have said me. Come on, I, I have no education, no training. I, I don't speak. You know, I don't speak at the synagogue. When I go to synagogue, to the, the house of prayer, they never call on me to go and lead the prayer. They never call on me you know, when the scrolls are open to read. They, they don't call on me to go read. Why would God choose me to do such a thing? And yet he did. The question here, can God use you? Can God use you? And will you let him? That's the question. Forget about what you can't do. Forget that. Forget what you cannot do. God knows exactly what you can't do. We can't do. The prayer should be, Lord, here I am. Please use me. He'll decide how he wants to use you. Usually what's missing is an open heart that says, Lord, I'm here. Use me somehow. But unfortunately, many times we say, well, I'm too old and I'm not feeling well or I'm too young or I don't have enough experience or I've done this bad thing once and everybody will refer to that. If they ever see me try to do something good or in the name of Jesus, they'll call me a hypocrite because they know that one time I was this or I was that or whatever. You know. No, the, the, only, the only thing I believe that God wants to hear from us is, Lord, here I am. Use me. 
Use me in ways that even I can't even imagine. I'll tell you something. When I was 20 years old, okay, a young adult, young enough to you know, have most of my life ahead of me, adult enough to understand life, if someone would have said to me, <laughs> you're going to spend the majority of your adult life as a preacher for the Church of Christ, I would have said to them at the, at the age of 20, number one, what's a preacher? <laughs> I was a Catholic growing up in Quebec. What's a preacher? Is that some kind of priest or something? That's number one. And number two, what's the church of Christ? I've never heard of that. What is that? Is that a church? Is that some kind of sect? Because being Catholic, you know, there's, if you're a Catholic, there's Catholicism, Protestantism, and then sects. Everything else is a sect. I would not have had a single clue, not even a beginning clue, to what you were talking about. Absolutely. It would be like telling a fish that he was going to fly like an eagle or telling an eagle he would swim like a fish. So totally out of my reality, I could not have related, not for a moment. So that's my witness to you. Those of you who are here, those of you who watch online, those of you who use this material on for your, uh, for your series. Lord, here I am. Please use me. All right, that's the end of the series. So thank you very much for your attention and encouragement. Pray that God blesses you and God uses you.